0: Welcome to Truth and Life podcast. We discuss the relevance of biblical truth to all of life. Hello and welcome. You're watching Truth and Life podcast where we discuss the relevance of biblical truth to all of life. One of the topics that's difficult for many Christians to understand is the ministry of the one who prepared the way of the Lord. We often quote him, talk about him and hear several sermons preached on his message of repentance. But do we really understand his ministry? Maybe not, at least not entirely. So to clarify this profound and all important topic, I have one of the foremost New Testament scholars as my guest. He's been on this podcast before. In fact, he's the guest who's been here the most number of times as a guest. So he needs no introduction here. And it's my joy and privilege welcome my guest today and that is dr darrell Bock. dr Bock, welcome again to our podcast it's a great honor and joy to learn from you and to have you on our show
1: Uh, it's a pleasure always to be with you and i'm looking forward to our conversation about uh one of the most um uh, interesting and intriguing figures in the new testament
0: absolutely Uh, So, Dr. Bok, as I always begin with a very interesting question and my heart tells me to ask you this question always, uh, what book are you writing right now?
1: I'm actually not writing a a book at this point. I'm planning on writing a book perhaps on the topic of race here in the United States uh, and issues that are tied to it. I, I do, I not only do New Testament, but I do cultural engagement here at the seminary with the podcast and obviously. The issue of race in the United States is very, very sensitive these days. And so um, I'm in the process of trying to organize a book with various editors from various ethnicities um, so that we can write a book that comes from a variety of angles on the question.
0: Wonderful, we look forward to that. Um, Great, so getting into the topic of our discussion for today, Dr. Bach, uh, let's begin with what the Old Testament prophets predicted about John the Baptist and obviously talking about himself John himself quoted this particular prophecy uh, Isaiah 40 verses 3 to 5 and I just want to read that out for us for our audience uh, before we ask you to explain what it is so our voice Christ says Isaiah in the wilderness the way uh, to prepare the way of the Lord uh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Dr. Bach, when we look at the context of Isaiah 40 through 66, it's obviously about the Babylonian exile. That's the setting, right? So uh, what's Isaiah saying here in that context?
1: Well, he's uh, announcing the protection and deliverance of God and the arrival of God. The, the idea of the leveling of the ground is, and I don't know actually if this uh, metaphor will work in India, but in the United States, we have a thing called the red carpet. Um, you put out a red carpet for a dignitary's arrival at an event, uh, and the red carpet shows how important that person is. Well, this is creation creating a red carpet for the arrival of God's salvation. And that's the picture that you have in the passage that uh, that everything is level so that he can come and be in or in and you can sense the importance of his having shown up and being present. Uh, That's the image that is that is working and then uh, John the Baptist is portrayed as the one who is announcing the herald if you will, that he is coming. And so this is to prepare for the arrival, he's announcing that he's coming <laughs> and so uh, the creation has hills and valleys and that kind of thing. So we're going to, the creation is going to level itself so God, can in. that's the picture and John the Baptist plays that role. And the association with the desert has to do with the location of that ministry and what that's going to involve eventually. It's a generic picture in Isaiah for the arrival of God to deal with his people, as you mentioned in the context of the Babylonian captivity, but it's a typologically prophetic text, which means that that arrival in the Babylonian situation is but a picture of God's ultimate work of salvation. One situation mirrors the other. It's called a pattern prophecy. I actually prefer that word to the term typology. It's, there's a pattern to the, to the activity so that one era mirrors, matches or patterns the other. And so um, this arrival of God to deal with his people is what Isaiah is declaring. In the short term, that was in relationship to Babylonian captivity. In the long term, it's in relationship to Messiah. And when you get the ultimate fulfillment, it's escalated above the initial example and mm-hmm. so the one crying in the wilderness now becomes a very specific figure, John the Baptist, who's telling Israel to get ready that God is coming.
0: Right. So Dr. Bach, in the very context of the days of the Babylonian setting, um, the, the exile there, uh, is it in the short term talking about God himself showing up uh, in the Deliverer, in the person of Cyrus and getting them released and God leading them back into the promised land?
1: Yes, that's the short-term picture, and uh, and Cyrus becomes a ty- uh, type of a kind of deliverer who uh, rescues the people. Uh, that that's the core picture in the short term.
0: Right, and and like you like you mentioned so beautifully, right now the second event becomes the fulfillment of it all, and it's much escalated than the first one, isn't it?
1: That's right, and most. Most typologically prophetic texts coming out of the Old Testament work that way. There's an event in the short term that the prophet is addressing that deals with the near situation. But that itself mirrors something coming later. And usually that later fulfillment has an escalated feature in it that tells you this is the ultimate this is the ultimate delivery point of this passage. Right,
0: right. very insightful. Dr. Bock, uh, just out of curiosity, how did the rabbis interpret this particular passage? Did they merely look at the uh, original setting and the context, or did they also have an eschatological understanding of things?
1: Probably depends. Um, the uh, They certainly saw it in relationship to the short term. Uh, that would have been And they would have seen, uh, you know, Israel as being the core topic and God's deliverance for Israel as the core uh, issue. Um, Later on, this text did take on an eschatological significance beyond the Babylonian scene. So, for example, at Qumran, uh, this text was the Qumran community, Qumran sect, applied it to themselves. Uh, They were out in the wilderness waiting and preparing for the arrival of God. And so they applied it directly to themselves and saw a time coming when a deliverer would come who would deliver them. They had gone out to the desert because they thought Jerusalem was corrupt spiritually and were waiting for the deliverance and their own vindication. So that's certainly how the Qumranians, uh, that's not technically a rabbinic application, but it is an application that was made uh, during the time of Jesus. The rabbis actually come slightly later. Um, but they have the same, um, uh, this text has the same significance for them. They, they're expecting it to be an eschatological text. So when you appeal to Isaiah 40, like the Gospels do, mm-hmm. and um, what happens is, is, that, uh, is that people understand the context of that appeal, that this is an eschatological announcement that is coming, uh, that needs to be paid attention to. And um, there's, uh, th- there's an important difference in the Gospels as well that's worth noting. In Matthew and Mark, we only get uh, the crying in the wilderness, make straight the, wa- the paths for the Lord. Only Luke's version of this passage extends the passage down to verse 5 and says that all flesh will see the glory of God or the salvation of God. The, the um, New Testament turns glory of God into salvation of God. Um, but that's because God is showing his glory by how he's delivering. It's a way of collapsing the passage because the message, the note in salvation comes a few verses later in Isaiah.
0: Right, right. Wonderful. So that sets a good context for our, uh, for our uh, podcast uh, this, this day, uh, Dr. Bach. Um, so, coming to another Old Testament passage before we get on to the intertestamental period and then on to the New Testament. Uh, I'm thinking of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Dr. Bach, where it's clearly mentioned, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Uh, So what's Malachi saying there, Dr. Bach?
1: It's the same idea. It is that there will be a pre-announcement of the arrival of God. And one of the things that's ambiguous, actually, initially, in even the New Testament use of the term, although it's it's clear from the whole story, is... What is being declared is that God is coming. It's not necessarily a declaration, the Messiah is coming, although that could be implied in the time of the deliverance. It's only as the story plays itself out in the New Testament, it becomes clear, oh, God is coming, and he's coming in and through the person of the Messiah that he has sent. And so these passages initially give the impression of the creation is clearing its way for the arrival of god and what god is going to do it's the most generic way most general way of um, discussing the topic and then as the story unfolds and you see oh john is actually he's not only announcing the coming of god and his salvation he's actually in the process of announcing as a forerunner the arrival of the one to come the messiah then then that puts the whole picture together and that becomes clear as the, as the narrative unfolds
0: right wonderful so dr bach i just want to talk a little bit about the context into which john the baptist came uh we just spoke about malachi and with malachi we all know that uh there came a long pause for the prophetic voice um, and no longer did god speak directly through a human voice to his people so, in the absence of such prophetic voices, what were the major streams of the religious life in Israel?
1: Well, what was going on in Israel, of course, uh, is the nation was having to cope with a series of foreign influences and rulers, uh, and how to how to be Israel in the midst of that foreign control of their land. Um, they had fought off uh, really an attempt to obliterate Judaism in the Maccabean War, uh, and. 167 to 164 B.C., a uh, three-year war in which uh, Antiochus Epiphanes had attempted to overrun and had actually successfully done so, um, Israel and and the fight back to do that, and Antiochus Epiphanes had tried to get the Jews to assimilate to what was the Seleucid culture. Um, they're located in what is now the equivalent of Syria. Right. So. Anyone who knows the history of the Middle East knows that the history of the battles between these peoples goes back um, centuries. In fact, it goes back millennia. And so they tried to outlaw the Torah, um, put uh, pagan sacrifices in the temple. They really tried to force Jews to become like the rest of the empire and try to eliminate their religion. Israel fought back, gained control. Uh, did for a while, and then eventually, through its own internal chaos, um, invited the Romans in to, to fix things um, under the Hasmonean dynasty. And Rome came in in the 60s, took control of the land, took control of the area, and now Jews had a choice as to how are we going to uh, cope with and assimilate to this reality of a foreign, of foreign powers really controlling our land and controlling our people. And there were different approaches to this. Um, The Zealots tried to kick the Romans out. They tried to fight and kick the Romans out. Uh, The uh, Sadducees tried to assimilate to the Romans. We're just going to make the best of this situation, try and cooperate with them, come alongside them, and, and create an environment for peace. The Pharisees tried to live distinctly, but allow as much assimilation as their religion would tolerate. And the Essenes, who thought uh, some of this was corrupt, went out to the desert to wait for God to come and deliver. So you have four different groupings and approaches for how to cope with this foreign presence the land. But there's a theological overlay that comes under this reality, which is that um, if you read the the last section of Deuteronomy, the Blessings and Cursing section, 28 to 30. 28
0: to 30, okay.
1: It says, um, it basically says, if you are covenantally unfaithful, then I will overrun you with a foreign nation. So the fact that Rome is in the land in control, if you read that theologically coming out of the backdrop of Deuteronomy, you go, why are we in this predicament? We're in this predicament because we've been unfaithful. Mm-hmm. We need to fix it. And so John steps in to that environment with a message calling the nation to repent because the situation around them says, through the backdrop of Deuteronomy, um, you must be an unfaithful people to have a foreign ruler in your land. And the only way to fix unfaithfulness is to become faithful. And then you'll see the pressure. In order to be faithful, that's going to drive some people to be faithful about, about obeying the law. Okay, that would be a natural place to go. Or we're going to be faithful because we need a deliverer. Okay, so much of Judaism's picking the former track. They're saying, yeah, the way to fix this is for us to become more faithful as a people. But John the Baptist comes along and says, no, the way this is going to be fixed is the Messiah is going to come. He's going to purge the nation, fix the nation, and also uh, prepare us for what is to come. And actually, there are lots of passages outside the New Testament looking to the period of the Eschaton, where one of the responsibilities of the Messiah is to purge internally the spiritual lethargy of the country to bring repentance to the people of God. And John the Baptist sets that table and preaches that message as a precursor for what that represents. I think that's the picture of the backdrop of why John the Baptist is ministering as he is.
0: Right, wonderful. So uh, Dr. Bach, uh, but looking at this entire landscape that you talked about, uh, even the apocalyptists, uh, they never went and heralded uh, the coming of God's eschatological deliverance, right? It's only John the Baptist who came first and did that in a prophetic way.
1: That's right. What they did was announce that this was coming and that this would be a part of the future, but they never said this is the time. Right. And so, what you're getting in John the Baptist, in effect, is this is the time. Uh, the um, uh, I mean, I mean, the whole point of the baptism itself is that it is a one-time eschatological washing. It is, it is a someone participates in it, saying, "I'm ready for God to come, and my heart is open to what He's going to do." Uh, that's the point. That's the point of John the Baptist's baptism.
0: Wonderful. Yeah, we'll come to that, and uh, we'll, we'll ask you to help us to understand that a little more. Uh, but before that, uh, Dr. Bach, what did Josephus say about John?
1: Well, um, Josephus uh, Josephus mentioned that John, one, that he existed, so that's important, and secondly, that he brought a moral reform uh, to the nation. He put it in terms that the Romans for whom he was writing would understand. John, Josephus is a Jewish general who was captured um, after the time of Jesus in the war in which Jerusalem was overrun. And he took it upon himself. He ended up uh, living in the emperor's home. He happened to be fortunate enough to predict that uh, Vespasian, the Roman general, would become emperor one day. And so when Vespasian did become emperor one day, Vespasian said, you know, there's that Jewish general who said I would become emperor. He foresaw this. I think I like that guy. I think I'll bring him into my house. And so he was under uh, imperial protection and wrote about Judaism for the sake of the Romans. And in the midst of this mentions John the Baptist at one point and the moral reform that he tried to bring, uh, again, moral reform being a way of explaining it to a non-Jew that would make might make sense to them or they might understand at least something of what it was that was John the Baptist was about didn't mention it, the connection to the Messiah didn't mention that part of ministry but did very much focus on the message of repentance and the bapt and the picture of baptism that underwrote it
0: right right and and did he also not say that many Jews saw the defeat of Herod's army as a punishment because of his punishing of was his slaying of John the Baptist? Am I right in that, Doctor?
1: Yes, that's true. He he did uh, he did allude to that, and he also um, saw the the war that emerged uh, out of that because of the the um, how can I say this the uh, the the chaos in the family uh, about um, about how uh, marriages were arranged and that kind of thing.
0: Right. Right. Okay. Great so uh, we had the Old Testament uh, and we understood what John the Baptist was portrayed as in the Old Testament in its context we came to the intertestamental period saw the setting of it and now when we come to the New Testament Dr. Bach and you've written much about this uh, I think recently you told me that you finished a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew for the Kerouk series Uh, and I'm sure you'll take some time to explain this for us Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2 the first message of John the Baptist repent For the kingdom of god or kingdom of heaven in matthew is at hand so would you please unpack this profound statement for us repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand
1: well the term repentance at least in greek means um to change your mind Uh, in in hebrew it has the picture of turning going in one direction and now going in another Mm -hmm. so the first part of the message is to Uh, And it's hard to know sometimes in these contexts, whether it's the more Greek meaning or the Jewish meaning or the combination of the two that's in view. But the point is, wherever you are right now, uh, you need to change your mind where you are and turn to God. That's what prophets do is bring people back to God. Turn to God and embrace uh, what his coming means. So you put it together, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Kingdom of God is a shorthand way of saying God is coming. God's rule, God's promised rule uh, is coming. And of course, that rule is a restoration of a connection to God uh, in the program that he has in mind. And so repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It is the forerunner's message, you know, when we talked about clearing the decks, so that the creation would be level and the red carpet shows up and God steps in. So what is God stepping in with? He's stepping in with this kingdom of God program where he's restoring his rule. He's bringing um, a vindication of the saints. He's bringing uh, an offer of forgiveness and an opportunity to return to him. So this really is an invitation to return to God by repenting. Um, and uh, this kingdom that he's talking about is the promised kingdom of the Old Testament, which is that God is going to establish his presence and his rule among his people and uh, create a, a holy, a sanctified group of people who will be connected to him in a unique way. And then this, this invokes in its background the new covenant promise, which is the offer of forgiveness and putting the law on the heart, or as Ezekiel says it, a washing that leads to a cleansing that allows the spirit of God to be put inside of people. So, however you want to express that part of it, that's part of what's being needed.
0: right. Wonderful. And we did a whole podcast on the kingdom of God, uh, but uh, just just uh, one more question on this, Doctor Bock. Uh, it could be a loaded one. Uh, perhaps uh, you would take a couple of minutes to explain this. Um, when we talk about uh, the kingdom of God coming. Um, For a Jew who is listening to the message of John the Baptist uh, in that particular context there, um, he would understand that he needs to prepare himself to face the Messiah or or the kingdom. But what do you think is the understanding of a Jew when John preached the kingdom is coming?
1: I think that they were looking for the vindication of the Jewish nation in the face of Roman presence. Right. Right. They were looking for uh, what we might consider a politi- primarily political solution. Right. Uh, and they're anticipating the defeat of the Romans by God and by the forces that represent God. And they're looking for the vindication of Israel. Uh, I think that's pretty clear at different points. So, And the way we know this is when Jesus begins to talk about suffering to his disciples and that the Messiah is going to suffer, right here... Can't process that. He doesn't. He doesn't have that category in his view of Messiah, and so he says, "There's no way that's what's going to happen." And um, Jesus responds to him with something slightly less than a compliment: "Get behind me, Satan!" Uh, and uh, because because this this kingdom isn't coming without without the suffering and without the grace that that provides, and so they're not prepared for that, and it took jesus some time to get his disciples to understand this is coming um in two phases really um what they what the old testament was anticipating is a package coming all at once the new testament has split into two parts there's the delivering part that comes with jesus's suffering on the cross and then there's the vindication part that comes later and the church today is still waiting for that vindication part to be delivered that's the second half of the kingdom program if you will so when john preaches it he's not thinking about those two phases all he's thinking is the messiah is coming and god's deliverance is coming and they're expecting this total rule over all the earth to be manifested Uh, and they're not thinking quite so much or at least as much about the redeeming part, the provision of the redemption on the one, on the one end that sets it up. Um, Jesus does it in two phases. He does the setup first, and we're still waiting for part two. Right. So we always like a sequel in the church. You know, we, we've got the first show, and then we've got the second part two. We're still waiting on part two. We're in the intermission.
0: Right. So that's what in theology we call as the already and the not yet,
1: right? Exactly right.
0: All right, great. So, Dr. Bock, uh, coming back to the context of a Jew who was listening to John the Baptist, uh, suppose the Jew had a good understanding of the Old Testament and he knew that Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So, how would he how would he have connected this message of John the Baptist and the person of John the Baptist to Elijah?
1: Well, what some Jews did, of course, during the time, is raise the question if John the Baptist was Elijah returning. In other words. There's a lot. We aren't talking about a literal Elijah who comes back, but we're talking about someone who does the kinds of things that Elijah did, which is to right. bring one of the most apostate periods of Israel's history, call Israel back to the Lord, and and so so the question is, does John the Baptist fit that that bill? Well, actually, um, the Malachi passage is kind of a hint in that direction, uh, and, and so. Even though John the Baptist said, I'm not Elijah, because he wasn't Elijah in the literal sense, um, he did perform this role of preparing people for the coming of of the kingdom and the coming of the eschaton. I'm using eschaton in its technical sense of the beginning of the arrival of the last things, the things that have been promised. And so... Um, he does occupy that position, and the New Testament in Spots um, portrays John as being at least an initial realization of this Elijah figure. Now, the Elijah figure in the Bible is another one of these um, typological categories where you can have someone in the short term represent this uh, this position, and then someone in the long term, when the completion of the realization happens, uh, we might get uh, another manifestation of the presence of Elijah
0: all right so that's also an already not yet right
1: that's exactly right
0: okay so so dr bach uh, did the rabbis or anybody in the intertestamental period the second temple jewish period did they ever understand the sequence where elijah would come and messiah and then the kingdom would come or is it just elijah and god would come
1: no that they uh, that the in some forms of eschatological hope, there was an awareness that with the eschaton, the Messiah would come and he would be the deliverer.
0: Right.
1: Um, he would be the agent to execute what it is that God was doing. But there was not apparently an understanding of the Messiah being as exalted a figure as Jesus's portrait of the Messiah was. That was also another difference. And so, um, so that's, you know when when Jesus gets presented very much in be as being the coming of God, as being the sent one from heaven, as John's gospel puts it, um, that pushes the portrait of Messiah into a new category for many for many Jewish people, and that category was so new that some people embraced it and other people didn't.
0: You're right, wonderful. So, so Dr. Bach, when John the Baptist came and preached. Uh, uh, about uh, baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, what was he talking about? What is this baptism of repentance?
1: Okay, so let's put this against two backdrops. Uh, one backdrop is the backdrop of washings in Judaism, which were common. Uh, washings associated with cleanliness were common. Uh, there was a thing called proselyte baptism when a Gentile became a Jew that involved a baptism, the picture of this washing. That was common. That's the background that John the Baptist is using this image of washing um, and associating with. There's that element. Um, The other backdrop that I've got to discuss, even though it comes later, is Christian baptism. Because Christian baptism and John's baptism are not the same thing, even though the mode is very, very similar. John's baptism is to a particular time in a particular period in which the person says, I'm ready for God's kingdom and deliverance to come. Christian baptism is a washing that portrays the fact that that promise has come and I am participating in it. I have been washed by what it is that Jesus has done. Right. So John's baptism and Christian baptism are not the same thing, although they're related.
0: Right.
1: Uh, one sets up the other, if you want to say it that way. So this is a particular baptism. I called it an eschatological washing, which is a long way to say. It is a washing that says, I'm ready for the end to come. I'm ready for God's promise to arrive. And my heart is open to what God will do. Uh, And so the person who repents and participates in this baptism basically says, I have just signed on to the fact that the kingdom of God is coming and that I want to be a part of what the kingdom of God is going to be. And so my heart is open. For what god is going to do that's what the baptism represents it's a one time uh baptism you didn't do it repeatedly like the washings of judaism for cleanliness uh it is sort of like proselyte baptism and says, i'm ready to be part of the community of what god is doing uh but it really is unique from both of those it is right. particularly set to the idea of the kingdom is coming and my recognition that i'm ready for the kingdom to come
0: right right So, Dr. Bach, when John the Baptist comes and says, uh, or proclaims the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, is he saying that, you know, live in light of an awareness of God's coming and judgment, and when it comes, you will receive all that the kingdom of God is meant to give you, which is the forgiveness of sins?
1: Yes, it's associated with the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins is the evocation of the new covenant. Because the new covenant was about the forgiveness of sins on the one hand and the placing of the law in the heart on the other, which is a way of referring to the indwelling work of the spirit, which gets us right into the core of the gospel. The core of the gospel is basically your sins are forgiven through the work of Christ. And because you've been cleansed, because your sins have been forgiven, the spirit of God can dwell in what is now a cleansed vessel. And God can give you, gives you the enablement, the power uh, to walk with him and to be in association with him. That's the core of what the gospel is. And so at one point in Luke 3, um, 15 to 17, the crowd is speculating about whether John the Baptist could be the Messiah. Right. And, uh, and only Luke gives us this detail. This isn't in the other gospels, although the rest of the saying is. And, and he responds by saying, not me. I only baptize with water. There's one coming after me. I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. He's going to baptize you with the spirit and fire. And so what John is saying there is the sign of the arrival of the new era is is the figure who brings the spirit of God to the people of God. That's how you know the Messiah has come. That's how you know the new era has come. And that's what the new era is about, the provision of enabling you to walk with God in a way that you are incapable of walking with God before you receive the spirit of God. That's at the very core of what it is that Jesus is doing, informing his own people.
0: Brilliant. So, so Dr. Bach, uh, when John is talking about baptism of repentance, that is, that is, something that looks forward to the christian baptism because the christian baptism is in a sense an outward sign of the salvation that you have am i right, right. In saying that?
1: that's right and in fact what i just described the gift of the spirit that enables because forgiveness of sins has taken place is exactly what christian baptism portrays it portrays yeah. a washing a washing that is a picture of a cleansing uh, which means that we are now um, de- declared as righteous, justified in the technical terminology of Paul, or shown as cleansed uh, in the background imagery of purity tied to Judaism, and, uh, and we are accepted by God as a result. That's the picture of what's going on. And in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, the very end of that chapter, There's a description by peter of what this involves and he says it's not the washing of water that counts it's the cleansing of a clear conscience so it it pictures what the washing represents and that is that that cleansing that jesus has provided by his grace
0: right right great uh just one question on what you raised uh in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 3 of luke dr bach when uh, he was asked the question are you the christ are you the messiah he said I baptize you with water, but the one coming after me is much mightier than I, and uh, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, right? So uh, in the intertestamental period, uh, going back to that, nobody believed that it is the Messiah who would pour out the Spirit, right? Uh, People believe that Messiah will come in the eschaton and the Spirit will be poured out in the eschaton, but I'm not sure they connected the two. Um, So how did John the Baptist get this clear understanding that it is a messiah who will pour out the spirit is it a special revelation
1: yeah i mean i what the initial answer to your question is i have no idea uh the second answer to the question is it, it's clear that um that he has received an insight
0: right.
1: and connecting the dots that uh that no one else had put together before and that sets up it's a great setup for what it is that jesus ministry is going to be all about So yeah, there's probably some uh, prophetic revelation that's tied to John the Baptist pulling these two strands of future hope out of Judaism together and tying them into a nice bow.
0: Right, right. Um, I I do understand from John's gospel that there is a revelation that is given to John the Baptist, uh, that the one on whom you see the spirit uh, coming, and you know, that is the one, and all of that. But I'm interested in this, Dr. Bach, I'd like uh, I like, uh, for your comment on this. Uh, would it be possible that John studied the Old Testament scriptures, and the Spirit of God helped him understand from his study that this the Messiah would pour out the Spirit?
1: Conceivable? Like I, when I said earlier, I have no idea. Okay. Um, you're asking me to fill in a gap now, and, okay. uh, and I don't know how that gap got filled. All I know I know the result of the filling of the right. gap. but I don't know right. how they you know. got <laughs> filled.
0: I didn't know who better to ask. So, so I asked you. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Right. All right. So, so moving on, uh, Dr. Bock, uh, coming to Jesus and John the Baptist, um, why did Jesus, the spotless, speckless Lamb of God, uh, have to be baptized by John the Baptist?
1: Well, he does it not because he has. Uh, A need to repent himself, and because there's sin that he needs to repent of, Mm -hmm. Um, and and in fact, the Matthew makes clear that when Jesus comes to John the Baptist, John Baptist is very nervous about baptizing Jesus.
0: Right.
1: I need to be baptized by you. Okay, let's switch roles here. Jesus said, "No, no, let all righteous be done." So, what is Jesus doing? He's identifying with the need of the people that he has come to deal with, okay? The need of the people that he's come to deal with is, uh, they need to repent, they need to turn to God, and he is identifying and creating solidarity between his own mission and his own provision that he's gonna give and their need. And he's connecting it that way. So when he says, let all righteous be fulfilled, he's not doing it because he personally needs to be, uh, he needs to personally seek forgiveness and needs to repent. But he's doing it because he's going to give the provision for repentance and the provision for forgiveness of sins and he's identifying with the very people that he will save to make that happen
0: right. so so he's basically identifying with the people that's it.
1: exactly right yeah
0: all right great uh dr bach uh, making the connection between john's ministry and jesus ministry and what john brought and what jesus would bring after him um going to luke 19 uh where, uh, where when uh, Apollos was in Corinth, uh, Paul was passing through uh, the inland country and he came to Ephesus, and there he we, found about 12 disciples.
1: You mean uh, Acts, 19. yeah, right? You mean Acts 19?
0: Acts, Acts 19, I said. Did I say you Luke? Luke?
1: You said Luke, yeah. I'm
0: sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah. sorry. <laughs> Acts 19. But but
1: turned, I, I kept turning pages. Go ahead.
0: <laughs> so, Dr. Bob, when I, when I talk to you, I think of Luke all the time. I know why. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so uh, yeah. So in Luke, Acts 19, uh, so uh, you know the story and all of us do know the story. Uh, they, they, he, he asked him, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say, no, we've not even heard about the Holy Spirit. And then he asked, so what baptism were you baptized into? They say into John's baptism. And then Paul giving the connection between the two baptisms. He says, uh, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And then they were baptized into the name of Jesus and they speak in tongues and the Spirit came down and all that. Dr. Bach, I think there's a very interesting passage where we'd like to hear from you the explanation.
1: Well, what's going on here, of course, is, is that there's a completion of the pattern that John the Baptist as a forerunner had announced. And they knew that Jesus had come, but they didn't know that the Spirit had come with Jesus. They just knew what the work that Jesus had performed. Yeah. Uh, Paul is filling, speaking of filling in gaps, uh, Paul is filling in that gap. And when that gap is filled, the idea of participating, in effect, in, in a Christian baptism and in a Christian picture of that washing comes naturally. And so they participate In that, and the spirit, and to show that they've completed the loop, the spirit comes um, to indicate that, and so um, that's the spiritual activity that comes out of that event. It's interesting. There, there are basically four places where the spirit shows up in this uh, visible manifestation in Acts. In Pentecost, in Acts two, when the when we move to the Samaritans, a mixed race, in Acts eight. When we hit the Gentiles with Cornelius in Acts 10, right. and then here in 19, going back to the very starting point of Jesus' ministry, which begins with John the Baptist. So we close the loop. We go to all the groups that Jesus is intended for, including the initial group to whom, uh, whom, as the forerunner, announced the coming of Jesus. And so Luke is completing that loop as he talks about the four scenes uh, where the Spirit of God is active in in ways that show that he's present as we break each barrier along the way and then go back and recover the initial barrier at the same time.
0: Right, right. So uh, this is also Paul's authoritative explanation of the connection between the ministry of John the Baptist and the promise fulfillment in the ministry of Jesus.
1: Exactly right.
0: All right, wonderful. Uh, Dr. Bach, coming to very practical terms, and you've written a lot on this. Um, You could take about five minutes for this. In practical terms for all of us, what does repentance look like? First in the setting of John the Baptist, and then when the Spirit comes down and repentance is preached for the forgiveness of sins.
1: So let me do this. Let me take the word repentance and put it in relationship to two other terms that are also response terms to the preaching of the gospel in the New Testament. Already told you repentance is about a change of mind. So yeah. you're changing your mind about something.
0: Metanoia, the, right?
1: the second term is the term turning, okay, the Hebrew term shoe, okay. So that's a picture of turning. And then the third response term, which is the big one, this is the one that everyone talks about all the time, all the way through the New Testament, is the term believe or faith. Yeah. So those are the, so we've got repent, turn, believe. Those are your three major response terms in the New Testament. You get on very rare occasions, a fourth term called receiving, okay? When he has received him, he gave the right to become children of God. That's in John 1. So, um, but really the three key response terms that you see are turn, repent, turn, and believe. So let me talk about the relationship between those three. Um, The idea of repenting, Tells the story of the response from where it starts. Okay? I have a need to change my mind mm-hmm. about what it is that God is doing and where I stand in relationship to God. That's step, that's step one. This is all a package. And I can actually pick any one of these three terms as an adequate response term. But I'm highlighting something different by the term that I choose. Right. So the first one is the idea of changing your mind. That's repentance. Uh, That's the term that John is using um, in uh, in his ministry. The second is the idea of turning. This is the Hebrew idea. So when I change my mind, what I've actually done is made a turn. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the dynamic of the response is not just the changing of the mind. In other words, the the decision that what I was doing is not what I ought to be doing. But it's the turning that... Is the dynamic that gets created out of the change of mind, okay? And then the third term is faith. That's where you land, okay? I land in a place where I am trusting God. I have faith. And that's a, that's a durative idea, you know. That I don't I don't trust God in one moment and then I'm done trusting God. No, I I land in the position of faith. So the reason the New Testament as a whole tends to highlight faith among those three is because it's where you end up. Right. Okay. So I change my mind. I turn, okay, and I end up trusting God. That is one package, if you will, of the appropriate response to the gospel, but I can highlight any feature in it. I can change my mind. I can turn. I can have faith. One will inevitably lead to the other one will inevitably lead to the others, both of the other two. So um, so that's what's going on. So repentance is the beginning of that sequence, which is natural because John the Baptist is introducing the arrival of the kingdom of God to which a response is required.
0: Right. So, so Dr. Bach, in, in several contexts in the New Testament, a couple of them emerge too, right? And uh, they are put together, for example... Yeah, there's a
1: wonderful passage in Acts 26 where you get all three terms within the space of a handful of verses. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in many passages, any one of those terms works as appropriate response to the gospel.
0: Right. Okay. So it's just looking at the core of it, but talking about it from different angles based on the context.
1: Exactly right.
0: And uh, what we want to highlight about it
1: exactly uh, do you want to think about where this is where this starts do we want to think about the dynamic it creates or do we think want to think about where we park at the end okay and uh, faith faith is the face faith is, faith is the parking place where the thing lands mm.
0: right but dr. Bock just out of curiosity uh, and and for a clarification here um, would you also think that the word Metanoia repent in the New Testament also includes the aspect of
1: turning? Well, it, it, it does. It's, what's interesting is um, out of all the Old Testament passages that get cited in the context of repentance, we never get a passage where the term shuv appears, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I mean, I think that what, what repentance means is I've changed my mind, okay? Uh, I, it's a change of direction, okay? If I change my mind, I change my direction. If I've changed my direction, I've turned. So that's, right. that, that's the picture that's involved in the word.
0: So, so you're saying that uh, it never stops with repentance alone. If you say you repent, you go all the way into faith and believing into Jesus.
1: That's what, that's what repentance does. Repentance right. puts you in the position where you land with faith. Because I, I was separated from God and reckon, and didn't recognize my need for him. Now I embrace my need for him. And in that turning, uh, I trust him.
0: Right. Right, great. And in the context of John the Baptist, Dr. Bach, he talked about it uh, much in terms of compassion, isn't it? Um, uh, acts of compassion, whether it be tax collectors or soldiers. So what's
1: really interesting, I'm glad you asked this question. What's really interesting is a passage that's unique to Luke in Luke 3, 10 to 14, where, Jesus, where John the Baptist has just said in verse eight, uh, make fruit worthy of repentance, okay? Um, I'm going to be very literal here with the Greek. The Greek word here is the verb poieo, which means to do, or we, in English we say to make. Uh, to do fruit worthy of repentance. That's the exhortation. So in three different places, follow up, in the follow-up, the crowd, different aspects of the crowd ask, what should we do using the same verb? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the crowd in general and then we get uh, tax collectors, and then we get soldiers who ask this question. Same question coming from three different places. In each case, the response has to do with how you treat other people. It doesn't have to do with how you're walking with God in your own personal relationship. It's an odd set of answers in one sense, because if I walked out on the street and said to people, What relationship does repentance have to do with? People will go, oh, my relationship to God. That would be the default answer to that question. And technically speaking, that would be completely correct. But in this response, what John is communicating is, if you repent and turn to God, that's going to impact all your other relationships. And it's going to impact all your other relationships so that you have compassion, you clothe the one, Needs clothes. You feed the one who is hungry. Um, to the tax collectors, you don't collect more than what what you are owed. To the soldiers, you don't abuse your power. That's that, those are the answers that he gives to those questions. And so what we see is a human relational connect, connection to what it is that repentance means. Repentance is not just an idea that builds a little theological library in my brain and stops there. Okay repentance is an uh, is an idea that changes the heart and changes the way i not only interact with god but how i interact with others
0: right and, and part of which is showing your uh, behavior in compassionate acts
1: exactly right
0: right okay great dr bach this was a very interesting and thought-provoking and more than that a very impressive theological conversation and uh, so we want to thank you again for taking time out of your extremely busy schedule and uh giving this time to us uh do you want to say something at the end
1: uh well it's a real pleasure to be with you as always and i hope this has been an encouragement to people because what it of course expresses is the initiative of god to reach out and touch all of us with what it is that he's done through jesus christ and to make the point that the only person who can remake the human being is god himself
0: right absolutely Thank you, Dr. Borg, for that reminder. And with that, I want to say to our audience, thank you for watching Truth and Life Podcast, where we discuss the relevance of biblical truth to all of life. Thank you for listening to Truth and Life Podcast, brought to you by Truth and Life Academy.